Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Yinyi is the author of Dream of the Divided Field, One World 2022, and The Year of Blue Water, Yale University Press 2019, winner of the 2018 Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize. His work has been featured in or at NPR's All Things Considered, New York Public Library, Tin House, Granta, and a public space, and he is the recipient of fellowships from Asian American Writers Workshop and Poets House. He holds an MFA in poetry from New York University. He was most recently poetry editor at Foundry. Currently, he teaches creative writing at large and gives creative advice at The Reading. Yanyi, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you, James. I, I'm really excited to discuss uh, Dream of the Divided Field, such a wonderful book. What is it that you love about poetry before we get into the book itself? And what is what first attracted you to expressing your ideas through poetic forms? Ooh, the big the big questions at the beginning. I feel like um, I, ch I, I feel like I remember different things every time I answer this question. Um, the thing that comes up for me right now is a discussion I had with a friend of mine, um, poet named Kate Walsh, who um, was saying to me, uh, poets are people who want to uh, be right about things, but the kind of right is not about winning. It's, um, it's about uh, getting closer to whatever is true. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I've always been just interested in that as a person of I've always wanted to to know kind of at a deeper level of like what what does this thing in the world signify or what what is this telling me about how I should live my life so I can in a way get get the most maximal um va not value I guess it sounds so economic but uh, it's a it's a kind of way of life for me I think and the writing is just something that I happen to do um, to, to get to that kind of understanding. So I love the variety of forms and voices you've employed in Dream of the Divided Field. Poems that are slight and sparse like Blackout and longer prose poems such as the pair of Home for the Holidays poems. How do you find the form that captures the idea or image that you want to share? Well, a lot of my poems um, start out kind of just, uh, you know, you, you have a spark or a moment, a flash of something. Um, a lot of times for me, it's musical. Mm -hmm. um, so Blackout, for example, um, happened during an actual blackout. I was in New Mexico with a friend and we were staying in one of those earth ships in, in Taos and the, the electricity went out and I woke up in the middle of the night um, to, and all of the lights were on. And um, it was kind of in that moment where I, I ended up just writing quickly something like on my phone. And all of my poems start out most of the time in some kind of prose. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell pretty quickly, rhythmically, and with 
um, the kinds of rhymes that show up when I'm writing the poem, that whether or not the poem wants to turn into a form. But I try, I try so hard not to impose anything at the beginning. Um, and I try to let the, the poem um, and try to let myself think um, in as fully as I can um, before I whittle it down to whatever it is that um, it ends up becoming. So Home for the Holidays was written in, and, and Blackout were both written kind of um, in the same ways, but they ended up because of the ways that they came out in completely different forms. I have a strong editor, a critical like uh, person or, or voice. So um, for me, it's like, no, 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 shh, shh, be quiet. <laughs> like let the, let the actual writer do the writing first. No, it's interesting you say that. That's definitely similar to the way I approach it. I And it's partially because I, I tend to write very late at night on my phone in dark mode so that I don't uh, wake my wife up. But I'll pick up my phone and go into Google Docs in dark mode so it doesn't make cast much light. And I'll just start writing. Because it's on my phone, I really can't focus too much on form. It's just not practical. So I just focus no. on the words and images. Uh, and then there are other poets like... Uh, uh, Carmine DiBiase and A. E. Stallings, who I interviewed on the series, who mm -hmm. they dis they have a way of seeing the form first, or they use the form as a constraint or a decision made that they don't have to think about later, and then pour the poem into it, and that's uh, like a mold, and that's uh, definitely the uh, so the way you approach it is definitely more similar to the way I do, and I think most of the folks I talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, so the poems of this collection about transitioning achieve an extraordinary balance of setting just enough context without being so concrete that the poetry is lost. Taking care is a powerful example of that. What's your approach to achieving that balance of, of providing the context but not being so, um, I guess, uh, documentary in nature that, that the poetry mm -hmm. gets lost along the way? This is a really interesting problem or an interesting kind of issue that comes up um, still for me. And I, I notice it when I'm teaching too, that I, I have students who are kind of explainers. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a two prong kind of way that I think about it. The first of which is um, you have to have the courage to like not ask someone to understand you or to, to, to really believe that you can be understood. I think there's an emotional courage that needs to, to be there um, in order to, to get to the kind of editing um, that you want to do, possibly. So for me, I, uh, as you know, will write as fully as I can. I will include everything that I think, et cetera, um, for the first couple of drafts that I write. Um, and there's a lot of kind of push and pull of like, I write a little and then I edit and then I write a little, um, which you probably know about. Um, but after a certain point, my editing style is if I, I think a lot in terms of, of image. Mm -hmm. So if the question for me becomes, does this image tell me just as much as what um, this kind of more abstract uh, detail tells us? And if that's the case, then I can probably, I can probably cut the um, more explainy part of it. Or there are aspects of editing around not wanting to share certain details of my life and having to ask like, well, do I lie here and, and mm -hmm. add something different or um, do I just cut it? So that's a little bit of the, the kind of thinking tree that happens um, when I'm editing stuff. It's so tricky because if you're 
too abstract and too ambiguous, then the reader can get caught up and distracted by trying to figure out what the heck's going on. But if you're too explicit, then you don't give any chance for that poem to have different meanings. And I think a, a nice example of that is, um, you know, when I read and reread Coming Over from Dream of the Dividing Field, which you'll read later in the interview, it could be interpreted mm -hmm. as referring to a separation of two people as a standalone poem. But in the context of your book, the poem takes on a completely different meaning. Um, so what was your approach to revising and editing the manuscript to achieve poems that both work individually, but that serve the book as a whole? I'm so glad that you saw that about coming over. Um, once I understood the book as as a book, um, I, I learned about coming over as like more than just a breakup poem. It is a poem about integration of the self and also disintegration. And um, it was a really difficult process this time around because stylistically the poems in this book are very, very different from each other. And so um, I had to kind of like ask myself about the balance of like how, what, what should it feel like going through the book formally, but also conceptually how much, how much information I want to, to give to people. Um, but uh, a lot of the ways that I, ended up thinking about it is I actually had to go through every single poem and write down here are what what are the themes that this is touching on and like what more is really coming out of this book than just what I pre kind of like you know my my preconception of it which is like oh it's a breakup book but it's it's really not it's it mm -hmm. oh I mean it is but it's so much more than a breakup book it's about um this kind of larger question of of how does one retain or have a self between two moments in time? And is it possible for that for that same person to exist? And, you know, there's et cetera, et cetera, more ways that you can use that as a metaphor for other things. And I, I think what was that, and that's why I read, uh, when I do these interviews, I read uh, each book twice. And I try to read the first time knowing as little as possible uh, so that I just experience it um, fresh. And when I reread the book, I just saw that poem in particular in two very distinct ways. It was very cool. I, I really enjoyed that. So I, I definitely encourage listeners, if you have the time, read books of poetry <laughs> twice because you will see poems a different way the second time through. And it's almost as though you're reading a brand new version of it. So in Landscape with a Hundred Turns, you write, a hundred birds flew over a hundred fields. A mountain flowed into a hundred rivers, then ended. In a hundred rooms, I turned and turned, hoping to return to you. Such a beautiful passage. Uh, just, it, it jumped out the page at me. How do you know when you've created something beautiful versus knowing you need to revise, edit, or even rewrite entirely? And what are the feedback loops that help you find those points where you should not touch it and where you should work at it? Ooh, okay. So just let me know if I forget to answer any part of this question because I feel like there's a lot there. I feel like I've already forgotten the question. <laughs> I think it's like the I think it's like you've written something beautiful. I mean, yeah. I mean it's like how difference? do you know this was a beautiful thing and you yeah. just shouldn't overwork it. You know, it's like dough that is ready to be cooked and you don't need to overwork it. Um, versus 
you know, targeting, knowing that I really need to work at this, it's not there. And how do you, and you, it's hard, almost hard to assess yourself. Like what are your feedback loops that help you target mm -hmm. that editing process? Well, time is definitely a big factor for me. I, I like to, um, I do a lot of things kind of in my editorial process to re-meet the poem. Mm -hmm. um, and it's evolved kind of for this book, it was one way and for whatever I'm writing now, it's a different thing. But um, I do a lot of handwriting um, and retyping. And part of that process is, is this, is this particular part worth my typing this out again or writing this out again? Do I derive pleasure from writing this out again. So that's a very practical thing. Um, but the the rest is really like, I, I remember writing landscape with a hundred turns. It was part of this, I was doing morning pages at the time. And it was part of this like blob of stuff, it's like six pages that I was of, of kind of figuring out or moving through that metaphor and what I was trying to understand with it. And um, when I reread it, when I was typing it up, I was like, oh, I don't have this, at least half this stuff, I'm not gonna, it's, it's kind of contrived or whatever. So part of it is also kind of my editorial eye and my, my experience of having, of, of, of approaching write, writing as a reader and, and mm -hmm. knowing like, this is what I wanna read or this is what I don't wanna read. Um, and it's so much more than like, what is beautiful or what is not beautiful. It is about kind of, for me, about newness of experience and newness of understanding. And the poem as I think um, uh, Thomas uh, Transformer calls it, the, the, home, the poem is a railing that you hold on to as you're going into the dark of understanding or something like that. <laughs> um, but that is, that is kind of how I think about it of like, how can this metaphor continue to help me? I want to feel excited whenever I read my own work again, even if I've read it a hundred times. Speaking of a hundred, hundred. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely think your point about uh, time's important. If you step away from something, you're you're going to get closer to experiencing it as a reader and less as as the poet who who just spent time to write something down. Part of it too is you have to not get attached to the time you invested in something because the, the time you invest in it doesn't necessarily correlate to how good it is and probably doesn't correlate at all. <laughs> so, Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the other thing that I like to do too is to, um, which Olivia Gatt would really reinforce when I spoke to her is, is just read it out loud is so important. And uh, I, I used to do yeah. that, but I didn't do it as intentionally as after talking to her where that you have to try to hear it as it would be performed. And then, yeah, if you enjoy reading it is a similar thing. If you enjoy reading it out loud, that's a good sign. If you don't enjoy reading it out loud or you're sort of skipping over something, that's a flag too. So, but mm -hmm. I do think in that particular case, that was both uh, served the poem. It was just beautifully written. Um, so when finalizing the manuscripts of my books, I agonize over which poems to include, which need more work, how to order the poems, how to group them into sections, what to call the sections, all these things. Uh, how did you approach selecting poems for this collection and then finding the way to group and order them? It was a really arduous process for this book. Um, I, I would say that my first book was a lot, was a lot more intuitive. Um, and I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that it would, that first book is just written in one style. And I also kind of had a clear vision of kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and I had a lot more time. Um, I had like kind of two years of like no prospect of it being published to kind of 
polish it off and, and really make it into what I wanted. And um, this book, um, I really kind of went through a couple of different phases of, I had to um, create different drafts of it in order to understand really um, what are the possible uh, resonances of this book that I'm not seeing right now. And mm -hmm. my editor, Nicole Counts, was really helpful in helping bring those to my attention. And I, I, I do feel as though having another reader or an editor is kind of a shortcut to that time thing because you have another person who's like, but have you looked at this or seen this? Um, so I I did that kind of like categorization thing that I told you about earlier. And and then I um, I do this thing that I call DJing by feeling, DJing by feelings where I like read, I read kind of one poem at a time and I ask myself, what do I feel like reading? Um, but in the case of this book, I also had to think about what kind of explicitly do I want to share with the reader? What information do they need in order to successfully navigate this book, which is more abstract and a little more kind of like you kind of have to read a little bit mm -hmm. more deeply into things in order to kind of get the full experience. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a really challenging aspect of it, I would say. Yeah, no, I definitely uh, I've done the whole print out everything, put it on my family room floor, leave it there for a couple weeks, walk by it, think about it, move stuff around, remove things, add things, decide there's a, a hole to fill. And yes, I found that that's, it's incredible how there's, there's no manual that says how to do any of these things, but it's so many poets I've talked to, they do something similar. Mm -hmm. So the poem, Dream in Which I Try to Disappear in Front of My Aunt, or Interrogation, is a powerful example of a recurring theme of separation from family, of the challenges of acceptance, of dislocation. You write, she's coming over and I know she will tell my mother everything. So I retreat from the rooms I know she'll be in. I reverse time. My low voice and short hair return to drawers and dark corners. It's difficult, if not impossible, as a poet to write without including very intimate and personal details of self, of trauma, of family, of relationships. And you touched on this a little bit before, but how do you approach deciding which personal details to include and which to edit out without sacrificing the poetry when doing so? Because I'm sure there are times when there's something very personal that you know would serve the poem, but you, you're, it, and I've had that struggle where I'm not sure I want, I was bullied a lot in mm -hmm. middle school before uh, getting to six foot five, uh, turned that bullying threat off. But, uh, you know, I finally found a way to write about that, but it was very difficult and it was, you know, it resurfaced things that at the time were really painful. So how do you, how do you make mm -hmm. that call on what to share and what not to share? I always think about a couple of different things. Um, First, the first thing that I think about is uh, like the kind of question of um, is this thing that I'm sharing possibly useful for another person mm -hmm. to know? Like as a kind of like collective moment of being able to like, I have, this has happened to me and therefore maybe has happened to you and that being helpful. Um, another thing that I, I do have a, I, I do have a bit of an ethical, um, guideline thing that I follow now. If I name people by name, I will ask them if I can use their names. Mm -hmm. I send them a copy of the poem. Um, with family, it's a little more complicated because of kind of my history with my family and also um, just how important that is to like my 
experience as a person and therefore my poetics. Um, so some ways that I get around it include actually just writing about dreams and um, allowing those details to be a bit abstracted. Like the, the like it, this is the poem that you just mentioned is a dream that happens to me. Um, but it's uh, abstracted in a way where I can really get to just talking about the thing that I'm more interested in, which is like not being able to go back in time and the kind of uh, my version of being chased by monsters dream, basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that feeling of, of wanting to let someone in and, and with that, that fear of them getting too close, basically, and it's too intimate. Uh, parts, which is a, a funny, funny way of, of thinking about the question you just asked. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, for for the poets listening who are thinking about writing about something that was traumatic, I got was mugged in Boston and wrote a poem about that in my first book and had to relive it very vividly to make the poem work. And uh, I had sort of not thought about it in a while, uh, but I found it very helpful to get it out. And then yeah. by, and this is something I've definitely talking to other poets they've experienced too. Once you get it out and you start thinking of it as a poem, it becomes one step removed and it becomes more, you're focused on the poetry and this memory, it, it doesn't go away. It's not forgotten, but yeah. it is, it's almost, ex, it's just externalizing it is helpful. So just uh, for listeners that have traumatic experiences, writing it down, even if it doesn't turn into a great poem that you're going to go publish somewhere, it can be very therapeutic. So I'm fascinated by very short poems. That is not my strength. I actually work with a poetry coach who uh, one week said, okay, for next time we meet, you're going to write a whole <laughs> bunch of micro poems and they're going to have no more than X number of syllables. And it was a very helpful exercise. So uh, Migrants uh, from your book is an example, just slightly longer than a haiku. My poems mm -hmm. tend to be longer and, and uh, um, using migrants as an example, what is your thought process when writing a poem that only needs a few lines to capture an idea? Is it, does it kind of start as that really tiny, slight poem? Or does, uh, is it a longer poem that you realize when you're, when you're cutting things out, it, it really doesn't need to be longer? Um, I'm trying to think of all of the instances in this book in particular where the poems are short and like what the story is behind them. Migrants was a poem that, I think it started out as a longer poem. It was a page length poem. And I kept trying to revise the whole, like the whole poem and, or I kept trying to add to it. And it was just not working. And I was like, why is this not working? And then I realized I, and, but I kept the, I kept that particular part of the poem um, coherent every single time I did a draft and I realized that that was the only thing I wanted to say. And um, I, it was, it, it's always very liberating to realize that of like, you might think that a poem should have a certain length or, or sound or whatever, but um, the poem will always uh, rear its, its head mm -hmm. in whatever way it wants to be. So um, yeah, I just cut the rest of everything um, that was not necessary in that poem and the whole poem is that turn, and that's it. Um, another poem in the collection um, is towards the end. Uh, I had a vision uh, of a hill, I think, mm -hmm. um, is a poem that I wrote kind of in one stroke and was, again, like, I was like, I'm one day I'm going to add more to this, and it'll say more, and it, the whole 
the whole point of the poem was that it is just what it is. Um, so, but that one, I, I didn't cut anything. It just kind of came out that way. And I, I was wise enough this time around not to, not to, not try to try to make it more it. than it needed to be. Yeah. yeah no, I love, I'm yeah. so glad I asked about migrants because, uh, I think that that's an important skill that you have to acquire over as you write more and more poetry is the willingness to to cut stuff out and even after you spent time writing it and I know I've I've found now having done that enough times that consistently when I decide I'm going to edit something out at the time it, there's a little pang of ah oh, I spent so much time writing that but then minutes later I can't even remember what I wrote like yeah. it's just gone like and, and that is just evidence mm -hmm. that yeah it didn't need to be there so I, I'm that's so cool that you you took a page length poem and it became so exactly what it needed to be um, so one more question before I hand the mic over to you. So Billy Collins said at a reading I attended recently in response to an audience question that a key to writing poetry is reading poetry by poets that make you jealous. So what poets do you read that make you jealous that challenge you to expand your voice? Ooh, um, I am, who am I thinking about right now? Um, I feel as though at the moment, um, I'm kind of in this place where I'm interested in expand, expanding my voice to be longer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working on a, a long poem right now, and it's just a, such a different, because I'm usually like maybe a page, page and a half or three lines. And so um, it's I'm really learning kind of a new way of being with a poem. Um, I feel like I'll always, this is kind of old school, but I, I've, I'll always be jealous of Virginia Woolf um, and the way that she pulls things together. Um, I think in particular, any poet who really writes in tight formal verse, um, Philip Williams just came out with a book last year, Mutinying, that is really like, really well con composed, constructed. Um, Roger Reeves also comes to mind of someone who's just got some, who's got something really in the like the medium to long length line that I really admire. Um, and I think I'll, I think I'll always say Linda Gregg um, because I'm working on her work as well. Um, yeah, I think I'll, those are the people who I'm thinking about for now. Yeah, and then for uh, and the reason I ask this is for the poets listening. There, there's uh, reading poetry. Well, reading in general is the best way to write well. You, it's hard to write well yeah. if you don't read well. And um, you know, doing this podcast has given me the extraordinary opportunity to talk to so many wonderful poets. And after I interviewed A. E. Stallings, uh, I was so jealous in a good way. That I don't want <laughs> jealous to be misinterpreted as the negative. Oh, about yeah. her ability to incorporate these extraordinary perfect words uh, that are definitely mm. long tail words, uh, but they're they're not obscure in the sense that they're dead words. They are they're just the perfect word that isn't used very often. And then her use of of received forms is just extraordinary. So, and I'm more of a free verse by default. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write mm -hmm. some received forms, and I am going to try to get closer to what she's accomplished and it was good i generated some poems that i'm very very proud of that oh, i likely great. would not have um 
that I ended up sharing a couple with her and she gave me a couple really helpful notes. And it was, I wouldn't have written them had I not been challenged by mm -hmm. her. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, so definitely reading Migrants makes you think, I've got to find a way to write some really short poems that are just enough. That's definitely not in my wheelhouse. That's definitely parked, planted that seed. Well, now I'm going to uh, turn the mic over to you to read uh, selections from Dream of the Divided Field. Coming over. What was left of our relationship neatly folded on the couch. And the bathroom noticed what else was missing. You came into the bathroom taking out your razor, your toothbrush, leaving my toothbrush, replacing everything next to its double, as though I had needlessly doubled. I walked out from my bathroom and you walked into my bathroom. The little soap and the razor, the duplicates in the bags not wanting to owe me anything, not wanting to have appeared. It is like that. I give my house and you take how you live in it. Not backwards or forwards, but the past and the present overcoming one another. Family Tree. I was born on October 1st, 1980 in Guangzhou, China. My mother walked herself to the hospital. She said she found me in a basket. I was born on October 2nd, 1990 in Nanjing, China. My father was not there for my birth. My father waited for me to be born, but left when I didn't come out. My mother has a long scar from where I, or they, cut her. I was born a girl and I was born a boy. I was born on October 3rd in the 70s in the fourth largest city of my parents' province. My father stayed for my birth, but I didn't show up. When I did, my mother still has a scar. I left on a plane when I was four and a half saw my father for the first time when we landed. When I grew up, I forgot his birthday. He told me he made up the date of his birthday, so I don't know whether I forgot the lie or the real thing. I was born as my father, who died in the womb. I was born on October 4th, 1990, in Shanghai, China, the only child of my parents. My parents met in silence. I imagined them laughing, Rarely did they laugh together in memory, but this doesn't mean it didn't happen. I was born on October 5th in the 80s in the second largest city of my parents' province. My mother was 27, only a month apart from my father. Later, we moved to Canada. My mother worked in the back of a Chili's to learn English. My father learned English by eating the nightly mozzarella sticks. We cooked cats with neighbors and friends. I kept jars and jars of grasshoppers. My parents grew more than a month apart. My father named me for a bird, then disappeared into migration. Garden sketch. On the left-hand corner is the bottom mound, surrounded by dense shrubbery. Over the mound to the right is the beginning of the land, which stretches further than itself in an ecstatic flailing. The land is cornered by only what is necessary, its bare back. It goes on and on to the middle, which only what we have been able to recreate here in this space. Peel the corners, there is laughing, but no people. The sun appears in the lower right corner while its gaze goes on dotting to the moon, surely rising top right. In the middle of the land is a lake, 
and then in its middle, a man. That is me. I look back at you. Wonderful. So I'm given the subject matter of the of the book of transitioning in part and many other themes that are woven in. Uh, these are experiences in many cases that are very different from my own as a cis Caucasian male. The and I learned things about that experience through your poetry. What have you learned from the readers of your poetry and the way that they provide feedback and um, may have had similar experiences or not had that experiences and, and had a deeper understanding through your writing? Um, I can give you just some recent examples um, mm -hmm. from just the book being out in the world. Uh, I, I have a former mentor and teacher of mine who who experienced um, breast cancer, who reached out to me and um, was very moved by the home for the holidays yeah. uh, poems. And that was, I, 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 you know, obviously I was thinking about my own experience when I wrote those poems, but I never, I never thought about it in terms of like someone, someone who had had the same surgery for different reasons, right. um, how they might've connected with the, the poem. So um, that's, I think that's always like really, gratifying to me of, of hearing from people whose experiences were not exactly the same or even um, kind of far away from what I was expecting relating to the work and and finding it really helpful. Um, I the for my first book too, like um, I wrote about abuse kind of within the family unit um, that in in a particular context kind of around queerness and um, I had someone write to me um, over social media where that um, context was a little bit different and but it, it still kind of like was moving for them around kind of their relational kind of boundaries um, with an abusive other. So um, I, I kind of I always learn from my readers how the book can be interpreted um, in different ways beyond what I'm thinking about when I'm I'm doing the work. Um, it, it ranges from people who just kind of discover formal things that I wasn't thinking about when I was putting the book together. But I think the things that I always remember, as you can tell from my examples, are, are when um, the work is useful for, for people whose experiences are just unlike mine. Um, and yeah, I kind of, you know, you kind of always think of like, oh, like people are coming here to learn about uh, like, I don't know these XYZ subjects or whatever. Um, and the possibilities of a book range so much further than than that, um, than information gathering. Um, something multiplies when, when you read and interpret together. Yeah, no, I had a similar experience with a poem I wrote for my first book that was, uh, it was inspired by a bell buoy out in the Pacific Ocean that I saw walking along the shore with my wife. And I thought, what would it be like to be tethered to the ocean floor with this important job, but really cut off from any contact? And then I built a whole poem around that called Tethered. And then mm -hmm. I shared it with some friends and another friend said, oh, I interpreted that as uh, like my parents who are in their 90s and they're tethered to their home, but the world revolves around them and they know every squirrel and every dog that passes and when the mail is delivered mm -hmm. and their whole world is encapsulated because of their, they're so elderly, they can't really get out and walk around, but they... They're tethered to that home. And then an animator I worked with to turn that phone, poem into an animated film viewed it as being tethered to her apartment in Italy 
during the pandemic. And mm. uh, yeah, and I think your point, that call out of, I've had on, you know, several close friends who have gone through breast cancer. And, and yes, that, that example that you called, I had the same, um, the same reaction where, oh, that's, that's the detail that happens behind, you know, in a hospital or behind closed doors when people aren't recovering that they don't talk about as much. And I, I thought it was very helpful. So I think that's where you were actually more explicit. And I thought you made a really good choice mm -hmm. there to, to provide more detail and some specific language that I had heard and could appreciate better. So it's very effective. Well, just one more question. Um, mm -hmm. I reread, uh, family tree multiple times. It's such a wonderful use of the prose poetry form. Uh, which you uh, mentioned in, in other contexts. So full sentences, paragraphs, it's prose, and yet it works because it isn't really prose, it's poetry. And I think that's the cool thing about prose poetry, which I've incorpor incorporated into a few poems. And I, for me, it's the sparseness of language, the jumps in time. So how did this poem specifically evolve from the initial idea, from the first phrases into this very tight, um, prosaic, but clearly poetic uh, work? Well, it the the poem was inspired from um, a workshop uh, when during my MFA, um, uh, the the poet Wo Chan, um, who was a fellow student at the time, brought in this um, prose piece I think by Luke Sant called Resume, and it is kind of a, a very similar of like um, a bio biographical sketch of one's life, but every single biography is different. And so it is this beautiful kind of like permission to lie um, prompt, um, which I, I often I often use when I teach too, actually. Um, and so for me, it was like, well, what am I going to lie about and why? And um, that became in its own way kind of an exploration of like, what am I trying to hide or, or what, what do I hide for what reasons? Um, so that so there were like for example more uh, explicit or truthful if you will or or um like grandiose kind of versions of of the stanzas that were kind of uh taken out at a different point and um during the editorial process i kind of just realized that i wanted to kind of circle around um this uh image of kind of migration and and what does it mean to be conceptualized um by one's parents and how to how does one conceptualize one's parents based on this kind of shared origin story in a way um and yeah so it, it kind of just evolved from that um i i noticed also like i think to speak to your point about like prose poetry being like it's in prose but what about it kind of makes it poetry um, obviously the repetition in every single stanza um, about I was born, I was born, I was born. Um, but the I think there also was for me kind of the the play and moving around kind of the same phrases or the same ideas, but just slightly changing them um, that I think give the poem kind of its heft in um, the idea of the conception kind of uh, or the idea is happening in kind of the differences between every single one. Cool. Well, last question is, what are you working on now that uh, has you excited? And you've sort of hinted at that a little bit earlier. 
Well, um, I'm, I, I very explicitly told myself that I'm going to take as long as I want to write the next thing that I'm going to put out into the world. Um, I wrote my first two books basically in um, like very quick succession after each other. Not, not because that was my intention, but I, I kind of, it just kind of happened that way. And I, I really want space to like grow into new versions of my voice. So I'm working on um, a very long poem right now. Um, and that is at the moment kind of about, um, it's like about New York and leaving New York, but, and, you know, being there uh, for 10 years. So it's funny that you're there right now. Yeah. Um, and kind of what I wanted and what I hoped for. And it's a little bit of like a Kunstler roman, um, if, if one were to think about it in terms of, you know, like what is the plot. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm using it to kind of explore a lot more things, um, especially around kind of like uh, paradise, basically, and like where is it now in our world? Um, and what, how, do, how are we searching for it or, and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'm, it's, it's that and a bunch of nature poems, I think, writing <laughs> a lot about nature. Cool. So, um, it's very strange. I feel like I know exactly what the book is going to be, but I also have no idea what it's like, you know, very in detail going to look like or be, but, um, it, one of the strange things that's happening is that as I'm writing this, I, I feel like I know the superstructure of kind of what the manuscript will look like or will be, but it's like, it's like, it's like when you're going on a hike and or like a nine day hike and you're like, oh, those mountains over there, I'll be over them by the end of this, but not right now. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read what you have uh, coming next and I'll patiently uh, wait, wait for it as you give it the time that it deserves. And yes, time is the most powerful editor uh, with poetry. It really is. It really is. So yeah. thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.